This morning, we are celebrating with the Neal family of the confession and the profession of Samuel Harris Neal. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling the parable of the man who lost his sheep, of the widow who lost her coin, and of the father who gained his son. And in Luke 15, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who who repents. Just as the man found his coin, the widow her coin, and the father his son, so too the angels are rejoicing this morning. Because Samuel Neal has professed faith in Jesus Christ. As you know, we had a communicants class a few months ago. And in this class, I had a whole lot of fun. I don't know about any of the kids, but I had a lot of fun. And in this class, we looked at the storyline of Scripture. How is the Bible held together as the story of God redeeming his creation in Jesus Christ? Who are we? What are we here for? And we looked how the Bible, the story, all points to Jesus. And the, Vi- and the Bible invites us to participate in this story of God's great redemption. That God created everything and he created it good. And he created man and woman in his image to rule his creation as though he were here. He gave them dominion and purpose, and a task. And he planted them into the garden, and he created a covenant with them. Because a covenant is about a relationship. And covenant is how God pushes the story of Scripture. He comes to his people. And then we saw in the next chapter of the story that man rebelled. You know, a lot of people use the word fall when they describe Adam and Eve's sin. And I don't like that word, because most of the time when we fall, we do it on accident. In rebellion, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And God kicked them out of the garden. They chose that what they wanted was more important, what God wanted them, and they rebelled. They sinned. Yet within this scene, God does not leave his people without hope. In the midst of betrayal and mutiny and treason, God promised them the seed of the woman would make everything right. He would come even when they sinned, and he would redeem his creation. And the seed is Jesus. Because once they're kicked out of the garden, men begin to die. And death is a defilement of God's good creation. Because only where death happens is where sin is happening. And God redeemed us from our sin. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God. This is why Jesus came. This is what Jesus is doing. He is re creating the people of God. With the help of the Holy Spirit, he is making us like Jesus. And this is why we go to church. And this is why we have the sacraments. Because that is where God recreates 
his people. That's where we hear the good news of the gospel in Jesus. That is when we receive the sacrament, we see God's goodwill to us and his covenant promises. We receive baptism because he marks us as the people of God. And we come to the Lord's Supper so we can see and taste and smell God's promises to us. We have become very carnal people. We tend to only believe what we can see, what we can taste, what we can smell and hear. And God has met us. And we see and touch and taste the good news of the gospel. This is what Samuel is doing this morning. He is proclaiming, I want to be a part of this story. He is saying that Christ has saved him from his sins. And as a baptized member of Christ Presbyterian Church, Samuel and his family, and we, the family of God, are able to look back at our baptisms and remember God's promises to us. And that isn't all. Now we also see the promises, and Samuel promises to help us as a congregation. Because God has made Samuel very special. God has given Samuel very special gifts that only he has. And you need Samuel just as much as Samuel needs you. And that is why we celebrate. That is why the angels are rejoicing. Samuel is becoming a full member of the covenant God. He's no longer passive by the faith of his parents. Samuel is saying, I believe in Jesus. I want to be a member of of the family of God, where God is recreating us into the image of the Son. With that, Samuel, will you please come forward? Third day of Advent is joy. You can follow along in your pew Bibles on page 595 through 596. And this is going to be out of Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. On the third day of Advent, we light the pink candle of joy. God's people rejoice in the presence of their God, even while in the darkness. Just kidding. Wilderness. <laughs> Isaiah writes in chapter 35, verses 1 through 10, of a future appearing of God's presence and the work of his divine salvation. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and then rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lay down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but shall be redeemed, shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and Satan shall flee away. Reminds us that our joy rests in knowing and embracing Jesus, for he gives us his joy. Jesus says we will have sorrow now, but he will come again. Then those who have been pilgrims in the wilderness, their hearts will rejoice, and no one will be able to take away their joy. They rejoice forever in the presence of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, verses, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. You can read along on your scripture sheet or it is in on page 886 of your pew Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Our Father, as our eyes behold the incarnation, your Son becoming flesh, the Son of God and the Son of Man. We look at that incredible event. We look at the cross. That a father gave his son for rebels such as us. Oh, Father, what you gave and what you did and what he gave. Our Father, whatever we do, whatever we give in this life is a pittance compared. And but we come bringing these gifts, not to win your love, not to earn our salvation. Rather, Father, in these gifts, we're declaring your sovereignty. We're declaring that we are not self-made people. We're declaring, each one of us, that we're charity cases, completely dependent upon you in all things whether it's a physical food at the table or the spiritual food, 
the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ. Our Father, we're charity cases. The world comes and ever striving to attain more, ever striving to proclaim their autonomy, ever striving to be self-made. Oh, Father, in bringing these tithes, we give not because you need. You own it all. There's no need that you have. We come bringing these gifts declaring our need, our need to give. Confess that Jesus is Lord and we are not. So, Father, with joy we come, with laughter, with gospel laughter, we come with these gifts. In the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Scripture that's on your scripture sheet and are in your pew Bible or in your Bible that we read this morning. with the Jenkins and then with Bill. Our scripture will be taken this morning from Isaiah chapter 9 and John chapter 1 verses 1 through 9. Let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, as a congregation of your priests, we bring before you our friend Tom Morgan, our brother in Christ. We pray that you would give the doctors wisdom right now to see, to hear in such a way that they can do what needs to be done for him. We pray that you'd preserve his life. Father, a few years ago, you brought about an incredible healing in his life that looked to be impossible. We thank you, and we thank you for the years that you've given him, and we pray now that you would bring healing and give him more. Our Father, as we open your word this morning, once more we confess that John Sartell is not able to teach, not able to preach, so that it will make any difference in our lives. Our Father, you know that I know this. You know that it's not just religious rhetoric. So, Father, once more this morning we cast ourselves upon your grace and we come to you as children saying, Teach us, Father. Teach us from the oldest to the youngest. Tell us a story once more. Explain to us the depths of your word, the beauty of your word, the greatness of your grace. Oh, Father, teach us. Continue that change that you started in us here this morning. Change us from the inside out. Maybe some of us for the first time, for the glory of Jesus Christ, 
Amen. The light that conquers the horrific darkness of this world. We begin where we left off last week. We begin with Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 8 and 9. At the end of chapter 8, Isaiah describes the horrifically dark times of northern Israel. Israel had been attacked by one of the most cruelly vicious nations in the history of the world, Assyria. They had devastated the northern part of Israel, conquered the cities, carried men, women, and children off into slavery. In fact, they just practically emptied the land. Cities were eradicated. Assyrians moved into those places. Isaiah wrote about it. It was horrible. Think of Hitler's concentration camps. It was that sort of evil, that sort of darkness. Isaiah wrote about it in Isaiah 8:21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and they will see nothing but distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The part of Israel affected most were the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were just completely devastated by Assyria, dominated by Gentiles, enslaved by pagans. It was a dark time. Look at the words distress, darkness, gloom. People, it was from that situation, it was from that darkness that God began to speak to Isaiah about the coming Messiah. Oh, it would be 700 years, but he chose this time of darkness to speak about that time. You see, this darkness was a prelude. God used this as a prelude to those profound and wonderful words about Christ in Isaiah chapter 9. He ends chapter 8 with the awful suffering and darkness. But he begins chapter 9 with a great light, a great dawning. Look at it, Isaiah 9, 1. But there will be there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, in this later time, he's made a glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep distress and darkness, on them a light is shone. The NIV says, on them a light has dawned. Now again, what part of Israel was that? Zebulun in Naphtali? So why did Isaiah, this is where we close last week, why did Isaiah mention the Messiah 700 years before he was to be born? Why did, in the midst of this darkness, did he announce this? 
this great dawning that would happen. In the midst of the wretched suffering of Zebulun and Naphtali. Well, where did Jesus begin his ministry? In that same area. Nazareth was in the area of Zebulun in Naphtali. Capernaum, where Jesus lived, was right there. That's where most of his miracles were done. Jesus says, one day, the awful, the, this awful darkness is here now, but one day an incredible light will come to this place. Now, last week we focused on the darkness. The darkness that's in everywhere in this rebellious world. The darkness of our, the cultures of this world. That's what we talked about. We talked about the darkness that's in our own souls. It's, it's even in us. Christmas begins in the dark, in response to the darkness. But there's something more powerful than the darkness. Look at John 1, 4, and 5. John reaches back to what Isaiah said, a light will dawn. There'll be a great dawning. There will be a great light. John reaches back and he speaks about the coming of Jesus. And he says, in him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's a summary of last week. We saw the gospel demands that Christians be realist about the darkness of this world. We don't wear rose-colored glasses. That darkness is still here. But the gospel also demands that Christians be realist about the power of God's light against that darkness. There's a light the darkness cannot overcome, and his name is Jesus. First, I want you to see this morning that the light of the gospel is self-generating. Now, you hear that and you say, but this is abstract. I think I might catch a few Z's this morning. Check out. Don't you dare. This is the most practical thing you can hear. It's not abstract at all. Look in verse 2 of Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Look at John 1, 9. John reaching back again to that light, that subject in Isaiah. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Something happened that would never happen before. And this light was self-generating. It's not something. They did not build the light. They did not develop the light. Some, some dawning civilization, some new civilization didn't bring the light. Like the sun rises, so the light came. They had as much to do with the light appearing as they did with the sun rising. What did you have to do with the sun rising this morning? You didn't. This light was from another place, another source. It was a self-generating light. One of my favorite books in all the world, it's, it's, it's not a Christian book, but I give it to young men 
and young ladies a lot because it's about leadership. It's not how it's advertised, but you just can't miss it. It's about leadership. It's one of the most exciting stories I've ever read. It's called, the book is called Endurance. Uh, I just recommend it to you to read men and women, children, teenagers, whoever. But in that book, Alfred Lansing wrote about the darkness that comes in the winter to Antarctica. And he said this, quote, early in May, the sun appeared over the horizon for the last time, then slowly dropped from sight, and the Antarctic night began. In all the world, there's no desolation more complete than the polar night. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who've experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without sun day after day, week after week, month after month. Few men accustomed to it can fight off its effects. It has driven some men mad, end quote. Imagine it. There's no day. There's no sunrise. It's only darkness. Day after day. But imagine being there. Put yourself there. Imagine being there when the sun peaked above the horizon for the first time in months. And for a brief few minutes, you could see the curve from its circumference above the horizon. And you knew the next morning you would see more. Could anyone stop it? Could the darkness stop the sun from shining? Tomorrow morning, what power on earth can stop the earth from rotating and the arrival of the dawn? Just so, the power of the light of the gospel is self-generating. There was a day, going back to Isaiah, there was a day the light dawned in Bethlehem. There was a day he dawned in Galilee. There was a day he dawned in Judah. There was a day he dawned in Rome, in the Roman Empire. There was a day he dawned in your life. Can you, you, sh- you should read this and say, yes, a dawning did happen in my life. A light came that I had not known. His dawning is outside of our control. It's not something we ge- regenerated. You remember when Christ first brought the light to you? The incredible thing is he still brings it. We still have that rebellion in our souls. What happens this morning? What happens on the Lord's Day morning? We see the light fresh. We see the light anew. The gospel demands that Christians be realist about the darkness of this world. The gospel demands that Christians be realist about the light of the gospel, the light of Christ against the darkness. Thirdly, the light of the gospel is self-generating. Fourthly, Christ cannot be opposite of what he is. He's light. He cannot be darkness. Look at John 1, 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, 
was coming into the world. So he's the light of the world. It's all through the Gospels. John, by the way, the Apostle John, if you want to read something, uh, since we're talking about these last two Sundays, the, Jesus being the light of the world, read the book of John. John, and read the letters of John. In the Gospel of John, in the, John's first letter, you'll read more about Jesus being the light than anywhere else in Scripture. No other gospel writer talks about it as much as John does. In 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Did you see that? In him there is no darkness. John was not saying light is God. He was not saying that God is a ray of light. Even though his glory is indeed glorious, it shall light, it shall light all of heaven one day. In scripture, in scripture, light is a symbol for wisdom, for holiness, for life, for salvation. In scripture, darkness is a symbol for what? Evil, for ignorance, for unholiness, for death. When it says God is light, Christ is light, it's saying Christ is holiness. Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is salvation in and of himself. He is our salvation. He's the world's salvation, and he is life. He cannot be evil. You know, there's things that are impossible for God. God cannot be opposite. Of what he is. God is holiness, wisdom, salvation, life. He cannot be evil, ignorance, unholiness, and death. Why am I saying this? Again, don't, don't fall in this and say, well, this is kind of abstract. No, it's not abstract. Let me tell you how real it is. Men have been on a quest. Since that first rebellion, since the fall, they've been on a quest doing what? Making God to be something he is not. With every idol, they're making God to be something that he's not. We want, the world is trying to create a God that has some darkness. A God that is not that holy. Who doesn't have so much light. We want a God who's not so hard on adultery. In the Hong Kong Tattler, there was a cartoon that showed Moses coming from the mountain. And he was carrying the tablets of the law. And he gives this report to Israel. Folks, it was hard bargaining. We do get the milk and honey, but the anti-adultery clause stays in. Folks, we laugh, but that captures our mentality. We want a God to whom we can explain our sin so that he will be permissive, so that he won't be so holy. We want a God with a little darkness. We want a God, but we want the desires of our heart. So we need a God with a little darkness who will wink at our sin. 
What did John say? Little children, God is light and in him there is no darkness. He's holy. A Sunday school teacher asked her junior high class, what are sins of omission? The catechism teaches us that they're sins of commission where we see the law of God and, and we break those laws. And then these other, there's these other laws that we see that tell us to go do something and we don't do them. Those are sins of omission. So this teacher asked, what are the sins of omission? And after a minute, a seventh grader answered, aren't those the sins we should have committed and didn't get around to? You know, I, I felt like that. And I know that I'm very much like you. And you're very much like me. I felt like that. I wish I had committed that sin when the opportunity was there, when no one knew. I wonder what I missed. But then we hear the words, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness. We want a God who calls our materialism good and understands our constant quest for stuff. We want a God who calls greed good. We want a God who calls homosexuality good. That's our whole culture's driving in that area. We're, this is not abstract. Our culture is saying we want a God who has some darkness. We want a God who calls homosexual homosexuality good. We want a God who calls abortion good. We want a God who calls greed good. We want a God who calls self-indulgence. Who, who, we want a God who calls for self-indulgence, not self-denial. But there's no unholiness in God. In Him, there's no darkness at all. God is light. That, that means He's truth and He's wisdom and He's righteousness Knowledge and life. What was it the psalmist said? Your word, you can say it in your minds with me. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. A light unto my path. I know how to walk. I know where to walk. I know how to walk. Because your word lights the way. It's the light. Why is this word light? Because God is light. He calls us to see what we could not ordinarily see. A few years ago, uh, A man and his family began to attend the church that I served. I had not seen him before. I didn't know his family, didn't know him at all. He told me later that I was the first person who ever told him that he was a sinner of such magnitude that he deserved God's eternal judgment. He said, John, I was furious 
when I came to church and I heard you preach. I was so mad. I couldn't understand for the life of me why my wife and daughter wanted to keep going to church there. All I, I just had to laugh. When, I, when he was sitting there, did, did I know who he was? No. Was I preaching to him? No. I didn't know who he was. I was just preaching God's word. And what was happening? The light of God's word was shining upon his life for the first time. Remember what happened? Want to understand this, how this thing of light works? What happened in the sixth chapter of Isaiah? Go home and read it today. In the sixth chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah talks about it. When his whole life was changed, he saw the glory and the holiness of God. He said, just, the, just God's road fill this whole entire gigantic temple. And here were these great, great creatures of seraphim. They're not, these angels are not wearing halos. They're fierce and they're huge. And they were singing what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They could have been saying light, light, light is the Lord God Almighty. And how did Isaiah respond? Oh, this is wonderful. The light, this is great. No, how did Isaiah respond? He responded by saying, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips living on a culture of unclean lips. Sin, the light revealed sin. That's what happens first. That's why Christmas begins in the dark. But the light comes. And it's good light. What was happening? Going back to that man sitting in church. What was happening? I was only a messenger carrying... Someone else's message. God was making his light. This light was dawning in that man's life. He didn't want to hear it. But then he heard the good news about how the Savior had come and died for rebellious sinners. In fact, he heard that Jesus would not take him into his church until he was bad enough to need a Savior. He would tell you, as he told me, for years he had lived in incredible darkness. He thought he was been living in the land. He lived in incredible darkness. And then Jesus brought that incredible, wonderful, delicious light to his life. The gospel demands that Christians be realist about the darkness of this world. The gospel demands that Christians be realist about the power of Christ's light against the darkness. The light of the gospel is self-generating. God cannot be opposite of who he is. Wherever the light of the gospel, then fifthly, wherever the light of Jesus goes, the darkness recedes. We could spend days and days and days on this, but don't worry, we're almost at the end. We're not going to spend. But we can't pass over it. Look at, look at John 1.9. The true light which gives light to everyone 
was coming into the world. In verses 4 and 5 of John 1, In him was life, and the life was a light of men. The light shines in darkness. Wherever it goes, it has to shine in the darkness. It has to push back against the darkness. Here came Jesus making the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the paralyzed to walk. Here came Jesus bringing the dead back to life. The light had dawned. The darkness was receding. The Pharisees could not stop him. The Sadducees could not stop him. Herod could not stop him. Pilate could not stop him. The Romans could not stop him. Blindness could not stop him. Leprosy could not stop him. No disease could escape his healing power. Death could not hold any man when Jesus called him forth from the grave. And when death laid hold of Jesus, Jesus left death's tomb empty. Isaiah said it this way, looking forward to Christ. Israel had won a great battle against Midian at one time. And he says this about the light in 9.4 of Isaiah. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke. Who shattered it? God did. Who shattered the light did? The dawning did. You shattered the yoke that burdens them. You shattered the bar across their shoulders. You shattered the rod of their oppressor. That which was the rebellion, the darkness, the ignorance. He shattered it. Who is this God who became flesh? Who is this God we experienced? Who is this God with whom we have fellowship? He's light. Not abstract, is it? It's a powerful truth that has changed our lives and changed our world. It should be. It should drive us to tears and at the same time drive us to laughter when we look at some of the deepest darkness. I, I was thinking coming to church this morning about times in my life, even as a Christian, when I've sat down with, to, to talk to people and people have talked to me about hideous, hideous things happening, horrible things happening the underbelly of the world happening in their lives. And I know that that could be me. I thought of a man that came to me and he described something that was going on in his life and it was so ugly and so dark. I, I didn't even want to, I didn't want to see him again. I didn't want to talk to him again. Not because I was a moralist. I'm not a moralist. It was because I knew that could be me. I knew that could be me. And it wasn't moralism that divided us. It was, I knew about a light. A light had come to my life. Well, now I want to tell you, you, we've gone through five points. 
I got one point. It'll take about two minutes. The incredible truth of this. He's the light. Jesus is the light of the world. But you know what he said? Jesus has made us. People of darkness. People had darkness in their own lives. He's made us to be light in his world, in this world, in this dark world. He's made us to be light. You know that? He's made you to be light. In Matthew 5.14, we read, you are the light of the world. He was talking to Peter and James and John. You're the light of the world. He has made people in whom the darkness lived to be light in his world. Wow. From time to time. Our lights go out. Remember the last time your lights went out at your house? I was cleaning out a drawer at the house yesterday, my house yesterday. It had all these candles in it. And it used to be that we would light those candles. Lights went out, we got the candles. And then I finally wised up. It's a lot easier to turn on a flashlight than, you know. So I was throwing out all the candles. I didn't need them any longer. I've got flashlights in every drawer in my house. They're in the kitchen. They're in the bedroom. They're in the back of my car. They're in the garage. Flashlights everywhere. The light goes out. Wherever that light goes out, I've got a light to shine in the darkness. People, that's who we are. Tomorrow morning, you will get up and you're going to walk out into Fayette County. Let me tell you, there's a lot of darkness in Fayette County. It's all over the place. There's not a culture in this world that's not dark. And we walk through this. what Jesus has done. We walk through that darkness and we're the flashlight. We're the light. And from time to time, the light that shines in us, not because we're moralists, because we belong to Jesus. And he lives in our lives. His spirit is in us. And from time to time. People see that light. And from time to time. The light that is in you. And the light that is in me. God uses to bring light. To someone in the dark. Our hymn is so fitting. 